Okay, we're on. So everyone should have two sheets of paper. There's this one, which has various readings on it in the middle. Um, if there is actually, there's more over here. Here you go, there's some more. Um, and then everyone should have a handout, which is two sides. Okay, good. Okay, so I think a little recap is in order, considering it's been two months. So, Lauren, what did we talk about last time? The restoration of Israel. Very good, very good. Does anyone remember what we talked about the time before that? Jason's going to check his notes. The kingdom, yes. So the kingdom of God, we looked at the promise of the kingdom of God in the prophets, very briefly dipped into the New Testament. Then we talked about the restoration of Israel, and we looked at how this was something that didn't just involve the Jews, this involves God restoring all his people together, and we looked at how um, there was that theme of the, the restoration of Israel involved the Israelization of the whole world. All, all peoples coming in and so on and so forth. Uh, now, the, as I said, when we did the first one and then the second one, this is kind of a part of three. In many ways, this one is kind of just uh, picking up the, the pieces of those ones. So passages that we've talked about are coming out again tonight. Things that have already been said are being said again, but with a particular focus in one area. So the study aims tonight, if you look at the top of the handout, are to explore the promises of new creation and the role they play in biblical eschatology, and to see what God's plan is for humans in these promises of uh, new creation. And uh, as, as we go along, I'm sure we'll see that, yes, plenty of the things are coming out again. So if at any point we need to stop and go over things again, that's fine. We can do that, as always. Okay, so let's, let's dive in uh, with some promises. So fixing the world. Right. So this kind of involves going right back to the beginning of where we started. So we saw Genesis 1 to 3, God had a promise, no, not a promise, sorry, a purpose and a plan for the world. He had a, a teleology that was there in the protology that would govern the eschatology. Remember those three phrases? And, uh, oh, good evening, Jane. So that the first question, I mean, I've given you the answer on the handout already, but um, what went wrong? Why, why do we need to talk about fixing the world? Yes. Yeah. So Adam had a commission to extend the glory of God to all creation. Go from here, bring the glory of God everywhere, turn this world into a beautiful place. So it was quite good, actually, quite a good revision for Deep Dive. Uh, Jelly asked me last night, why did God make us? And I thought, how do I kind of succinctly answer this for a three-year-old? So I've got my three points were, he made us to be his friends, he made us to glorify him, and he made us to make creation a beautiful place. And she was satisfied with that, but then I thought, we can actually go further with this. What's wrong with humans? And I asked her, are are everyone God's friends? No. Do people all glorify God? You know, the inevitable, what does glorify mean? Okay, does everyone? No. 
does everyone want to make the creation a beautiful place? No. So when you kind of look at the, the purpose, the, the teleology, to use that word again, you can also see what went wrong. So then the big question is, Adam fails. The, the mission goes kaput. What is God's next move? Does he scrap it? Done with this world? We'll make a different one somewhere else. Um, so there we go. God has a plan that involves people for the world. How does, how does Israel come into this? We've, we've talked about this a few times over the last few sessions. So how does Israel come into this promise or this plan of what God has for the world? Feel free to cheat and use the handout. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, uh, do, do you remember, we, we used this graph a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, I did each point, point by point. So, if you don't recognize it, let me break it down before you get, if you, so you don't need to get scared about it. So, if on the top line, this is plan. God has a plan to glorify creation. The bottom line are the instruments. So, he's going to do this through humanity. On the, on the um, left there, Israel are the instrument by which humanity do it. Sin is the opposing force. So this is a kind of a, um, a, a, a structure that you get in a lot of books that break down um, narrative shapes of stories. So there's, these exist for the story of Little Red Riding Hood, for instance. I think there's quite a helpful way to visualize what's going on in the story of the Bible. God wants to glorify creation. He's going to use Israel humanity through Israel to do so sin is always against them so so that as Exodus puts it Exodus 19 God has brought them to himself to be his priests to be his possession uh, to be a priest a kingdom of priests to all the nations so Israel's job we looked at this when we looked at the uh, mosaic law their job was always outward looking look to the nations bless the nations they are God's agents of fixing the world and so in that sense, the promised land, again, we looked at this, this is kind of all recap, I guess. When we looked at the Mosaic law, we looked at how the promised land, if they obey the covenant, the promises looked very much like Eden. And so the promised land will turn into this beautiful picture of a restored creation from which um, the borders extend and all creation can be glorified. So... That's kind of the background to what we're looking at. So, I mean, this is just a, a question I thought I'd put on the handout for us to think about in our groups, really, which is what is broken in creation that needs to be fixed? And I feel like in, in one area that's, that's you know, pretty obvious, but let's actually think through this for a minute. What is wrong with this world? What does God need to fix for it to be restored? So just natter amongst yourselves. Don't, don't sit in silence. Um, maybe just have a few minutes and think about some of the things that are wrong with the world. Okay, so what's wrong with the world? Let's, let's solve it all tonight. <laughs> Say that again? Yes. Yes, death is, uh, is at work in creation. Yeah. Subject to decay, that's a good, well, of course it's a good way of putting it, it's Paul's way of putting it, but... <laughs> Yeah. 
Hmm. So satanic forces at work in people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the, there seems to be a swell around humans in terms of the answers. It's, it's, we're mainly focusing on how humans and, and creation more broadly are, have a problem, which I, I don't think is a wrong thing to do at all. Um, it's just worth noting that we're, we're seeing our own problems, uh, not our own problems, our own fault in the problem. Um, I think, so on that note, let's jump into some prophecies. Th- uh, we've got three smaller ones, and then we're going to work on two bigger ones. Um, so on the note, on the, the sheet with some various readings on, I've put three, uh, two from Isaiah, Isaiah 51 verse 3, Isaiah 49 verse 13, Ezekiel 47, 7 to 12. Uh, I just think, read them. If... I don't know how possible it would be. If you could give me some kind of signal when we read it so I know when everyone's done. I, I don't really know what you do, you know, hand on your head or stand up and do a spin or just give me the eyes. Um, but just, just ask as you're reading these, what features stand out about this? Uh, no, actually, sorry, I've changed my mind. We're going to read these together. <laughs> uh, Mike, could you read Isaiah 51 verse 3? Uh, when you've done that, Jane, could you read Isaiah 49, verse 13? And then I'll read Ezekiel 47. The Lord will surely encompass Zion and will lift his compassion on all her ruins. He'll make a desert like Eden, a wasteland like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in Zion, thanksgiving and the family of kings. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Brian, could you read the Ezekiel 47 passage? Thank you. 
Wonderful, thank you. So what common features are there or what features of these stand out to you? You can answer either of those questions. What, what specifically in, in that regard? Did you notice what water is becoming a source of life? The Dead Sea. Yeah, so the Dead Sea, which obviously is named that for a reason, nothing, nothing can live in it, instead becomes this incredible source of life. I, I love that, that it's still, you know, God has given us salt as a wonderful blessing, and it says, there, don't worry, there is still salt. The, uh, the swampy waters will be there for salt. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Hmm. That is a good point. Yeah. That's very good, very good, noticing that, Joseph. Yeah. Just growth. Yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting in... Oh, no, no, carry on. Yeah. Yes, the healing of the nations, yeah, that's right. I find it interesting in the Isaiah 51 passage that the human and the natural are both seen as something that God cares about. God looks on compassion on the ruins of Zion and will make her wastelands like a garden of the Lord and so on and so forth. So it's not just the organic and the biological that God cares about. He does also care about restoring human culture. Interesting point to make, really, because we can often think of uh, anything that's human is an invasion in God's good creation, but it's not the story that Genesis 1 presents us. It's, it's, it's an important part of creation. It's God handing over to humans to put the finishing touches on. Okay, so th there are three fairly small passages. Uh, the Ezekiel one's a bit bigger. But the, the point in all of them is, yeah, that creation is, is being uh, transformed. So now let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Now we looked at this passage already when we looked at um, the, the coming king. Forty-three nineteen. Oh, I labelled it wrong. Yeah, my bad. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, actually, I've got the right numbers on the on the slideshow. Oh well. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, now, this is really important that we remember this. And as I say, this is a bit of a refresher. We looked at this passage in the context of the promise of the coming king. This is all about what the coming Messiah is going to achieve in his rule. So it begins by talking about the branch that comes from Jesse, the one who will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decides by what he hears, as, hears with his ears, but, will, uh, but with just with righteousness he will judge the needy. And then later on, he talks about the fact that he will stand as a banner for the peoples, for the nations are going to rally to him and so on and so forth. So we, we looked at those prophecies already about how Jesus, although we don't know it's Jesus yet because we haven't got to the New Testament, but this coming Messiah is going to bring all peoples to himself. He's going to be this perfect king, bless the world. But let's just read um, from verse 1 down to, um, let's go down to the end of uh, verse 11. Oh, and... No, yeah, let's just go down to verse 11. So uh, I'm going to read this one. Um, okay. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with just righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and in his resting place, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. So, we actually also read that passage last time when we looked at the restoration of Israel, because the very next verse, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. So this is all related to the coming Messiah and his work, what he's going to achieve. What comes out in that passage about creation? Yes. So, so this is why I said what I said earlier about when we think about what's wrong with creation, we often think about either it's broken or we're broken, we're broken and we're breaking it. And even if humans didn't exist, the way that creation is is still disharmonious, still testifies to uh, survival of the fittest and dog-eat-dog and uh, death as the normal cycle of life. I would say so, yes. I think so. I don't know. I wouldn't go that far. Maybe. I would say maybe. 
I don't want to be too dogmatic about issues with that because I think that there are legitimate ways that people can read the stories differently and come to different conclusions. And the Bible does say strikingly little about the kind of questions that we might want to ask. I, I personally would be of the persuasion that these things are a post-fall phenomenon. Um, but, you know, you have to agree with me. Um, either way, whether that was the way it was at the beginning or not, it is not the way it will be at the end. The wolf will live with the lamb and, and so on and so forth. It's amazing. Everyone always remembers this passage as the lion and the lamb. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sing the song. But, um, yeah, I mean, the picture's here. The, the cow feeding with the bear. You know, there is the picture here is that you can walk outside of your hotel room and there's a bear... And that's absolutely fine. There's a, there's a cow next to it. So I think that, I mean, I think that these, this, feel free to disagree with me. I feel like when we think about the promises that God has for this world, that what we haven't got to yet, we are very good at thinking about how we will not be the same as we are and not very good generally at thinking about how creation generally is being brought into harmony with itself. That's, that's God's plan. God cares about wolves and lambs living in harmony. And this is all in the passage, talking about how God's going to restore Israel together and redeem his people. So God cares about the salvation of us and our bodies as much as he does about lambs not getting eaten anymore. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No silly questions. The problem is, I think that when we talk about the restoration of Israel, we're talking about something that's already happened in the first century and is ongoing. So the Lord is continuing to restore. Um, somewhat showing my, my cards before we, we get further in. Um, no, 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 it's, it's all right, it's all right. Um, but yes. Okay. Any other comments or questions off Isaiah 11? I see no reason for it not to be, is, is maybe how I would answer that. Again, I would, love, I would love to know the answers to these questions. I mean, as Joseph did point out, the leaves never wither. So I don't, I, the, and the problem is with all of these things, it's hard to distinguish, because clearly, so you use symbols to symbolize a reality, and there has to be some very uh, clear link between the symbol and the reality. Right, so for instance, uh, if we change the symbol of entrance into the Christian faith from baptism, from, uh, from baptism to uh, jumping up three times, patting your head, and punching someone in the face, 
you would have to say, well, it's just a symbol, you know, that's just what we do. But in other sense, you say, well, but what does it relate to? The symbol has to fit some kind of meaning. So the challenge when you're reading the prophets is they do speak in symbols, but there does have to be a real relation to what they're symbolizing. So, so all of the things we've looked at so far, we can debate what the specific reference are, but they have to actually be connected to the reality that they're prophesying. Does that, does that make sense? So whether or not Ezekiel meant literally the leaves are going to wither or not wither is one question. What the Ezekiel prophecy does tell us is that God is going to transform creation to make it a place that's teeming with life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I, obviously, I mean, there is a sense in which there is no such thing as, you know, someone could say, oh, what's the season going to be in new creation? Well, it's obviously summer, whereas Anna would probably say, no, it's obviously winter, uh, uh, sorry, autumn. Um, and, my, well, I was going to say my brother-in-law, your son would probably say winter. Um, so it can't just be everyone's, so there does have to be kind of, the seasons are built into creation, something good that God's made. So that I, I don't know the answers to those questions, unfortunately, uh, except to say that whatever God is going to do, it is going to be awesome. Autumn's like you've never seen them before. Hmm. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Um, I'm not sure we could apply that to the same thing in, in Isaiah as just one wolf will lie down with just one lamb. Um, so, I, I, again, I, I would be inclined to say this is as close to literal as... Yeah. Um, yeah. It's fine, it's fine. We love interruptions. Um, 
Yeah. So there we go. There's, there's our 11. There's this promise of harmony in all creation. Bears and cows and so on and so forth. Children playing with cobras. So let's jump into Isaiah 65. Now as we read through this one, spot what's weird about it. So Isaiah 65, starting at verse 17. Uh, Poe, can I ask you to read? So it's verse 17 down to the end. go. So what's not weird about this? What's, what's the point of the passage? How does this relate to new creation? Yeah. So before we jump onto that, let's let's stay in just what the passage is, because I do want to come to that. But look at the the f- kind of the. F- I don't think there's any other word really to describe other than the kind of the full-orbed humanity. So there are people who are laboring but not in vain. There are people who are enjoying the things that they've built. There are people who are building houses and then living in them. They've planting trees and eating from them and, and so on and so forth. There's, there's work as God intended work to be. So th- and there's this, kind of, there's this kind of joy to it, I guess. And this is kind of what marks this creation. But as you say, 
there's death there. I mean, that seems a bit strange, doesn't it? We talk about new creation and there's still death. Well, what do other people think before I answer? What's going on here? How is there a creation, a new creation and death? And death. Yeah, so people are living very long lives, but people are still dying. No, I, I'm just curious to hear people's kind of thinkings about it, really. So I was in two minds about how much to go into on this issue. I mean, I, I, I think if I could have my way, I would, I would have this set up, and then later on when we get to Revelation, we could say, remember that conversation about Isaiah 65? But um, it may be leaving it a, a little too long without giving some actual answers. So I think, I think it's important that we do talk about this. So... Well, yeah, so when we looked at the kingdom of God, so bear in mind, these are three kind of parts all in one. What did we see in the prophets how the kingdom of God was going to come? Through, through a king, definitely, through a messiah. But the image that Daniel uses, for instance, like a tiny stone, just a tiny little stone, bashes into the floor. What happens to the stone? It grows. And it becomes a mountain. And the mountain grows and grows and grows and fills the whole earth. Or Jesus talks about it being like tiny seed. Like, when, when you've got the shrub, do you say, well, that's not a tree. It's still a seed. Well, it's neither the seed nor the tree. It's somewhere in the middle. But there is an organic connection between the stone and the mountain, between the seed and the tree, between the leaven and the bread and the final life. All the images that are used for it. The king, what the prophets tell us is that the kingdom does not all come at once. It's not floodgates. It's drip feed. Drip at a time, drip at a time, drip at a time. So... When in Revelation, for instance, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, it's looking at that end point, the point where there is no more death, nor pain, nor mourning. The, 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 the time where creation is restored and now people are just busy at work, uh, tree of life, planting, gardening, building up the city, so on and so forth. But this kind of gives us a preview into the process of its coming in. And one of the things we have to remember is that, and I said I'm definitely jumping the gun because we're going to come back to this when we get to the New Testament, but Paul, for instance, most definitely believes that the new creation has begun. He says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It's interesting that in, in English translations it always says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, but 
he is is not in Greek. It just says, if anyone is in Christ, colon, new creation. In other words, you want evidence that it started? Joseph. Or any other Christian, but I just looked at Joseph. So the point there is, if you were to ask Paul, has the new creation begun, or is it here? You might get an answer like, well, yes, but also no. Yes, of course it has. The king has come. The kingdom has come. The, the things are starting to shake. But no, people are still dying. There are still people opposed to God, so on and so forth. Now, we might be at a point much further along where the tree's a bit more shrubby, right? So billions of people know Jesus. I mean, this is a silly example, but if you were to go back in time 2,000 years ago and tell someone you have a dog, what looks would you get? Why on earth would you want one of those wild beasts in your house? Do you let it, you let it sleep on your bed? Well, now, my pet dog, it, in a very real sense, we can see an Isaiah 11 kind of reality. We just see them as man's best friend. So I, I do think very really that, very, very really? Very yeah, very really. I really do think that we can see the things that Isaiah prophesies about in our own time with the assumption that it, we're not there yet. We're very prone to thinking absolutes. Well, things aren't as they will be, so nothing's happened. And it's amazing how negative a, a, a concept we tend to have whenever we think about, is the world getting better or worse? We almost always say worse and assume that there was this golden age in the past. And I always just think... When would you rather go back? Would you rather go back 150 years ago, for instance? You know, you get an infection? Well, sorry, that's it, you're dead. You, infant mortality rate? There's a, there was a, in the 1600s, a child was more likely to die than it was to survive. There has never been a time, very rarely speaking, that is better to live in than now, and 100 years will be better, not just because of some random, we don't know what, but because Isaiah 11. The Messiah is reigning, so good news. Anyway, that was a tangent I wasn't planning to go on. But yeah, I think that's what Isaiah 65 is doing. It's kind of giving a preview, not the whole finished project. Any questions on that? Any comments on that? Oh, death. Yeah. Yeah, and, and also there are still sinners. That's important. Because anyone who doesn't reach 100 will be considered accursed. So there's still death and there's still sin. Yes. Very true. The serpent is still around. I don't think we're going to have time to finish everything I'd wanted to cover today, but that's, that's okay. We, um, we'll, we'll cover the next few bits quite quickly. Uh, can I move on, or does anyone want to stay on this just for a minute longer? Move on? Okay. Okay, I, I think this is an important question to ask, because we want to be responsible readers of Scripture. So, what do we do with these prophecies in their context? Because there is a word that keeps appearing in all these prophecies. It begins with a J, and it ends with Jerusalem. Any guesses? <laughs> Jerusalem. 
Yeah, so I, I, I've been reading that, we've been talking about it, assuming that we're just talking about all creation. But in every one of these prophecies, it talks about Jerusalem will be glorious, so on and so forth. And all of these prophecies come in the context of prophecies about the restoration of Israel. So how do we make sense of these in their context? Are we misreading them if we apply them to all creation? Now this is where I think we're really going back and we really have to remember last time about the function of Israel and the restoration of Israel, if we're gonna understand this. So I've kind of got these arcs here. And these arcs are, it's, a, it's an imperfect way of, I think, visualizing what I'm trying to get at, which is that the little storylines in the Bible are mirrors or, or pictures of the big storyline. So for instance, God's holy people who are in the beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, who then disobey the voice of the Lord and are cast out and have to be in the wilderness. Am I talking about humanity in Genesis 1 to 3, Adam and Eve? Or am I talking about Judah in Babylonian exile? Is Judah being taken out of Babylon back into the promised land to, to populate it, to, to uh, glorify it, uh, to all those kind of things, is that the same thing as humanity being welcomed back into the promised land of God? Well, no, but it does picture it. And for that, so you've got the big story, that's humanity, and within it you've got the little story. And it's the same story but in miniature. Now, if you look at the ark, that story has to kind of finish first. Israel needs to get back on track so that then the whole story can carry on. If we just, if I just jump right back to this one. If God's agents of blessing the world have become part of the problem, God needs to restore them to do their job to get back on the original task. Does that, that make sense? So I, I think the, the, the way that I think we can understand this nicely is there's a theologian N.T. Wright who uses these two phrases which I think are very helpful. So creational monotheism and covenantal monotheism. So, so and I, this is a bit technical, but just bear with if you can. And if, if it's going over your head, then just let it. Just daydream. That's fine. I won't be offended. Um, so if you ask a Jew, for instance, what does it mean that there is one God? They might give you the creational monotheism answer. That is, God is the creator of everything and everyone. All creation is his. So there is one God no matter where you are. But they might give you the covenantal answer which focuses on them. God is our God. He's the God of Israel. Israel is his people. And all the things they would say about God in that kind of creational context, they would probably also say in the covenantal context. He is the creator. He is our creator. It all belongs to him, we belong to him, so on and so forth, right? So what this kind of means is Israel, this little group of people, function as a microcosm. If you're not familiar with that word, let me give you a, a demonstration. If I were to say, odium is a microcosm of England. You've got um, the more wealthy people over here, and they don't interact with the less wealthy people over here, and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm making this off the top of my head, but the, the picture would be that this is like a miniature version of the whole nation. So microcosm literally means little world. 
So Israel is a microcosm of all creation. They are like a little picture of God's care for the whole creation. So I may be wrong, but I personally find that a helpful way to think about what's going on here because as God prophesies the restoration of Israel, he is in that prophecy prophesying the restoration of creation. These are not separate storylines. They're all part of one storyline. Is that helpful, or do we want more clarification on that here, Joseph? Is For the world, yeah. So it, we, could, we could say all people are God's people, and they have gone astray, and they need to be restored to be brought back into his presence. Or we could say Israel are God's people, and they have gone astray, and they need to be brought back into God's presence. And both are true. So, yeah. Does that, does that make sense? So, yeah, so basically we get, we get back to the end goal, which is we get God's people in God's world doing it for his glory. So, from all these, I hope the summary we can all agree on is that the new creation is the world made right to be as God intended it in his commission to Adam. Okay. Let's begin. So, bear in mind, we, this whole thing is about new creation. This whole session but we focused on creation more broadly, and now we're going to focus on humans and their part in that. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the restoration of Israel last time. Now, I'm going to read a quote that we read last time, because I think it's really helpful. So we looked at how there's, a, there's promises. Every time the restoration of Israel is promised, it uses the language of resurrection from the dead. And there's this quote I think it's very helpful. The meanings of bodily resurrection for dead humans and national restoration for exiled or suffering Israel are so closely intertwined that it does not matter that we cannot always tell which is meant or even if a distinction is possible. That is part of the point. So, what he's saying there is there are lots and lots of places where it talks about Israel being restored and dead bodies coming out of the ground and you have to say, is this about Israel's restoration or is this about a day where God is going to raise people from the dead? And the answer is yes. We're not supposed to be able to distinguish that very much. Now, obviously, when we get to the New Testament, we're going to see how this is very, very interesting. So, Mike said earlier when we talked about what's wrong with creation, death. Death is the greatest expression of the problem with creation. There are much, many other problems other than death, but death is the one that summarizes them all. So God, if God is going to restore creation, he needs to undo death. One of the things we just saw when we looked at Isaiah 65 is that there is a partial victory when death is delayed. So God is, is at work when people are living for a long time. Bear in mind, can I just also say on what I was saying earlier about dogs and stuff? Average age in Jesus' time, 40 years old. Average life expectancy in the 1500s, 50 years old. Average life expectancy now, 88 for women, 84 for men, I think. There, there is a... <laughs> there, there is a... a, a it, it's funny that there is kind of no difference prior to Jesus and then a little difference and then that 
difference starts to rise and rise and rise and rise and rise and then you get to square. And, and funnily enough, I mean, I don't know how much you can draw into this, but it's in all the places that Christianity is most impacted. We can talk about the mechanics of that another time, but just to throw that out there. Okay, so there is a passage which is kind of like the passage on this issue. Uh, so if we could turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Now, Daniel chapter 12 is in a very, is in the middle of a much bigger prophecy. And so the very first words are, at that time, Michael. So you might say, at what time? Well, go and read Daniel in your own time. And at that time, Michael can tell you about it. And as it is about Michael, can you read it, Michael? One who is like God. One to four. There we go. So, there we go. I've got it on the screen there. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. This is God's plan to deal with death, to deal with this problem in creation for humans. A day of resurrection. The same bodies that went in the ground will come out of the ground. Now, before you say, ah, oh, but their bodies will all be decayed, We've already looked at Ezekiel 37 uh, previous time. God is able to put new flesh on old bones. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about those who have been cremated. God made from the dust. He's able to recreate from the dust. Don't worry. God is bigger than the devices of man. Uh, there's a passage which we're going to look at soon um, that is a testimony to how the people of God were persecuted and they were mocked for their belief in resurrection and so one of the things that the, uh, the kingdom of Antiochus used to do would be to chop them up into tiny pieces and then to send those pieces far and then say, ha, how's God going to resurrect you now? And you just kind of think, what kind of God do you think you're dealing with? He's going to look at that and go, oh, blimmin' heck, they've really got me there. <laughs> anyway, so resurrection, that is God's answer. That is death defeated. And I, I really, I bang this drum, and I talk about this in sermons probably more than I need to, because we have got, and I'm also jumping the gun now, because we're going to talk about this another time as well, but we have got so ingrained in talking about going to heaven when we die that we've forgotten that that is not the major note that the New Testament plays. There are five places in the New Testament where that is maybe talked about. Two for definite, three disputed. So, Heaven, yep, of course it's a place we go to where we die. There are two places that talk about it. One's enough, two's great. But that is not the main way it's talked about. The main thing that is talked about is the day that is common to all people where our bodies will come out of the ground. When God has defeated death finally. When death no longer has its sting. When those who sleep are no longer asleep. 
I think it's really important that we grasp this because if we don't, we're liable to have a deficient theology of new creation. So if we die, we go to heaven. If Jesus then coming back doesn't affect us, there's something wrong. You see, do you see what I mean by saying that? So, so we die, we go to heaven, Jesus is there with us. And we say, okay, we're just going to stay here forever. Okay, great. Well, I'm just going to return to earth now. Okay, well, we'll wait for you here. You know, when Jesus goes, we go too. And we find ourselves joined back with our bodies. But I am jumping the gun because we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, yeah, well, 1 Corinthians 15, but also 1 Thessalonians 4 in a few weeks. Sticking in the Old Testament now. Um, so this is really important. A- any comments on that? Yes, I think the way I'm using it there is yes. Yeah, I mean, as I say, we somewhat jumping the gun, but that's fine, Joseph, as I've just jumped the gun myself, so I can't exactly hold you accountable for it. We love a bit of gun jumping. Okay, I'll take your silence as a no. So why resurrection? Why is this important? Why can't God just take us to heaven forever and ever and ever? Um, the principal at the Bible college I went to in my first year did this lecture where he came in and he went, right, put your hand up if you want to go to heaven forever and ever and ever. And obviously <laughs> most people. And he went, well, you're all wrong. <laughs> it was very funny at the time. Uh, but the point he was making was that, and the point that we need to make is that it's a Greek philosophy that has this idea of what would be good for us is if I could leave here and fly off to the spiritual realm to dwell there forever and ever. The fields of Elysium, as the Greek myths talk about. So why is it not Elysium and Hades, for instance, the, the bad place and the good place? Why is that not God's plan for us? Why is it not just living for a long time in the land? There are some scholars who say uh, Israel has no theology of an afterlife, um, it, they, their hope is that they're going to have a long life in the land of Israel. I think both of those are really poor, they're, and they don't honor the whole Bible story that we've, we've been looking at from Genesis and so on. So, so why resurrection? I'd wanted to look at Psalms 37 and 73, which, if you look at the handout, I mean, just look at how perfect they are as mirror images of each other. 37, 73. Go away and read these and you see why they're so important. Both of them are psalms which are reflecting on the fact that this life is not fair. The unrighteous prosper. The righteous suffer. And in both of them, there is a very strong line of, but I can rejoice because I know that God will make things right. And there is going to be a day where the righteous are rewarded and the unrighteous are made to pay for their, um, for their crimes. So resurrection is, the, is kind of a theater for God to bring the judgment and vindication which we so desire, which kind of humans long for. A, a second reason, I mean, I'm, this isn't exhaustive, I'm just kind of doing some things that I think are important. Creation belongs to God. It is his. Brian said it earlier really well. Satan may have some power, but it's power that doesn't belong to him. 
He may have come in and, and tried to take it, but it, it's not right. And God doesn't just say, oh, fine, you keep this one. I'll go make a spiritual realm. God doesn't make a deal with the, with the enemy. He says, no, this is mine, and I'm taking it back. Thank you very much. He calls it good, and he won't rest until it is good again. Uh, a third reason, these are all on the handout, by the way, in case you don't know where I'm, because I didn't think to put it on the slides. Um, why resurrection? God gets what God wants. He gave Adam a commission. He wants to see that commission fulfilled. And then Joseph asked the question, what do I mean by creational existence? Well, humans may be physical, spiritual beings. That's, that's right. But, so, so, so let, me, let, me, let me back up a bit. So if you were to ask Plato, for instance, a Greek, Greek philosopher Plato, what is the makeup of a human? He would say... Well, you have the real you, the soul, the spiritual thing, and then you have this nasty, yucky, fleshy cage. You are a person inside a body, might be what Plato says. And it's amazing how many Christians have parroted him since. That is not at all the way that the Bible sees it. Your body is good. And we can maybe distinguish between body and soul, like we can distinguish... For instance, if you have a sphere between what's circular and what's spherical, you know, you can see that's 2D, that's 3D. But they are so intertwined. And I think biblically we'd be forced to say that there can be an existence of just the soul apart from the body. But that's not the way that God intended us to be. Humanity is made for a creational existence. Right? God gave us taste buds. He gave us senses. He gave us all the things that our bodies have because that's how he wanted humans to be. That's why we need resurrection. Yeah, He doesn't want us to just be off floating in the, cl in the clouds, disembodied existence. The real us is our bodies made glorified. Does that ruffle any feathers? Or are people happy with that? I'm not trying to ruffle feathers, but... Well, I am going to insist that I wait because we are, we are going to do a whole session on what happens when you die. Because I do think that it's important to address that. Um, but my simple answer would be, if you believe in Jesus, heaven. My simple answer would be, if you believe in Jesus, heaven. Is that, is that satisfactory or not? So heaven and new creation are different things. Heaven is where we go where we die now. The new creation is where we will be after the resurrection. Yes. 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 Yes, at the resurrection, your soul and your body are reunited. Which, which is still your body. Yes. So when Jesus comes back, for instance, he eats fish with his friends. He, he, is, he says, you know, touch me. That, he, is, he has a resurrection body. There's a bit in John where they're, they're sitting him and they said, uh, no one dared ask him for fear, but they knew that it was the Lord. Which is a very strange verse. 
Because it's like, there was clearly something about him that was very, very different. But they all knew it was the Lord. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing they all say is, how did we not recognize that that was him? And it's like, oh, in one sense, it's so obviously him, but in another sense, it's so different. I think, I mean, an analogy I'd probably use is like, in a very real sense, Evangeline is not the baby I brought home from the hospital. And yet, in a very real sense, she is exactly the baby I brought home from the hospital. Yeah, or he had to make it up, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. I was actually reading the other day as I was preparing for my sermon on Sunday. People have written whole chapters on why does Jesus maintain his scars. Some, some people think that that is unlike the general resurrection body. He had those for specific reasons. Other people would say, well, no, this proves that our bodies are still marked. Um, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to let Jonna carry on. If what we do now influences how the world that stands in heaven, etc., you would, it, it, it kind of fits that what Jesus did on earth is reflected in his resurrection body. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it, I find it interesting. I, I feel I don't have an opinion on it. I mean, so I do, what I do have here is um, th- this is a note from a commentator who believes that Jesus's scars are out of the ordinary, and I, I do think this is interesting. He says that there are many possible reasons why Jesus maintains it when the believer won't. Uh, a, to exhibit the wounds to the disciples so that they would know it was the very same Jesus. B, to be the object of eternal amazement to the angels. C, to be his ornaments, the trophies of his great work for us. D, to memorialize the weapons with which he defeated death. E, to serve as advocates in his perpetual intercession for us. F, to preserve the evidence of humanity's crime against him. I'm not sure about F, but this is one commentator kind of thinking through, why, why does Jesus have them when we won't? Whereas obviously one answer might be, well, we will, but we'll find out. <laughs> okay. 
Oh, I really do hope we have time for this because uh, this is a really compelling story. <sighs> okay, we, we don't, short answer. Um, can, I, can I really encourage you to go away, take this sheet of paper, if you don't have one, I'll go print one for you, and read the story of 2 Maccabees chapter 7. Now, it, it goes without saying, 2 Maccabees is not scripture. I'm not treating it like scripture. I don't want you to either. What it is, it is a history book written during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament when the kingdom of Judah was occupied by the Greek uh, kingdom. And there's one particular king called Antiochus IV who, um, well, to put it bluntly, hates the Jews. He cannot stand that there are this obstinate people who will not become Greeks. And he is trying to turn Judah into a Greek state. And there are these very frustrating people who will not eat pigs and who will not stop worshipping at the temple and who will not come and worship the Greek gods and take part in the Greek games and so on and so forth. And this, is, I think, is actually a very harrowing story. It just begins by, on another occasion, a Jewish mother and her seven sons were arrested. And it tells the story of how Antiochus tortured and killed each son in the eyes of the mother, trying to get them to turn from God's law. And the reason I've brought it up, I'll just mention a few bits from it as to why I've brought this up, is because when you hear the source of their hope, the source of why they can stand against this king, I think it's very interesting. So, for instance, um, let's just very briefly look at this. Um, so, in verse 6, this is the oldest of the brothers being killed. No, sorry, this is the second of the brothers being killed. And he says, The Lord God is looking on and understands our suffering. Moses made this clear when he wrote a song condemning those who had abandoned the Lord. He said the Lord will have mercy on those who, serve, who will serve him. Okay, now let's go down to verse um, 9 on the next page. So, they're now trying to get him to eat pork. And in verse 9, With his dying breath, he, he cried out to the king, You butcher, you may kill us, but the king of the universe will raise us from the dead and give us eternal life because we have obeyed his laws. Okay, let's go down a bit more. Um, verse 14, another one dying. His final words were, I am glad to die at your hands because we have the assurance that God will raise us from the dead. But there will be no resurrection to life for you, Antiochus. Bear in mind, when he says resurrection to life, he's not saying you will not be resurrected. He's saying you will not be resurrected to enjoy life because he, in a minute, says that God is going to torture you. Um, so verse 18 the soldiers took the sixth boy just before he died. He said, make no mistake, we are suffering what we deserve because we have sinned against our God. That's why all these terrible things are happening to us. But don't think for a minute that you will avoid being punished for fighting against God. So I, I would recommend you go away. I mean, I've only included the first half of the passage, but I think it's quite a harrowing story, really, of a few people who were absolutely convinced of resurrection hope and so were willing to die for their faith because of it. Okay, let's do some actual scripture just as we finish. We've got five minutes. Um, this is just to make the point that resurrection theology is really built in to the New Testament. 
So I've just got three very quick verses. So if one person, uh, let me assign so we don't have people all turning to different places. Okay, Joseph, can you please read us John chapter 5, verses 24 to 30. You get that ready. Jono, could you get ready for us a very short verse? John chapter 11, uh, verse, I think it's 34, but I might be wrong. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe that will do. Um. Why can I not see it? John chapter 11. No, 23, 24. So, Joseph, could you read for us first? Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has passed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and and those who will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life. Thank you, Joseph. So Jesus is saying, you hear my voice, you'll live. And he's talking present tense. But there is a day coming when people in their graves will live. Those who are good to a resurrection life, those who are bad to condemnation. Jono, the passage for you. Right. Okay, so this is really important. So Lazarus is dead. There he is in the tomb. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now, if you have a loved one who's just died, and let's say I turned up to give some kind of pastoral counseling, and I said, don't worry, they're going to rise again. We will probably think you mean like what Jesus is about to do. You're going to try and pray over them, and they're going to come back like Lazarus did because we don't tend to think very much about resurrection. But Martha just says immediately, well, yeah. I know he's going to rise again on the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus has to say, no, I, I mean now. You see my point there? That It's so kind of like, it's just so familiar that when he says, oh, he's going to rise again, it's just like, well, duh. We know these things. Okay, and then one last one. Acts 24. This is Paul on trial before, Fes- before Felix. And um, Paul is giving his credentials as I'm not just in some hocus pocus cult. I'm the real deal. I represent mainline Judaism. And he says, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors 
as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Uh, there's another point as well where Paul is in the Sanhedrin and he shouts out, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The point in both of those places that Paul is just saying, basic to our belief, guys, is the resurrection of the dead. All I'm saying is it started in Jesus. So the, uh, the, just kind of a, a very quick glancing over these passages, but just to kind of make the point that this resurrection theology was kind of just considered basic at the time of Jesus. And Jesus could just kind of make reference to it and people know exactly what he's talking about. And, and Paul could say, yeah, this summarizes our belief and so on and so forth. Um, so th that's kind of, a, I think, an important a way to we need to round off this whole discussion about new creation. I'm aware it's nine, so let's, let's wrap up now. But um, yeah. New creation involves the defeat of death, not the subversion of death, not a deal with death, not God kind of making a pact with death or finding a nice way around death, the defeat of death. That means people who were dead not being dead anymore. So let's look at the way that Revelation says it. A loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So we have great hope, those of us who believe in Jesus. Death is indeed waiting for its death blow. Okay, very quick over a recap. God's revealed through the prophets his solution to the problem of sin. He's going to restore all creation. Israel functions as a microcosm of the whole world. They will be made right to make the world right. Human resurrection from the dead is the capstone of creation restored. Humans will live in harmony with God with immortal life. There we go. I feel we rushed a little bit at the end, but... We, we did make it. Is, is that all right with everyone? Any comments or questions or even pushback? I'm big enough to take it. I hope. Is that an affirming nod, Poe? Good. Okay. Should we pray? Yeah, Lauren, go for it. It's actually very traceable in church history, which basically there was a point um, fa fairly early on where Plato became really popular. And it was like, well, the Bible doesn't talk much about philosophy, so we'll go to the philosophers. And Plato's whole doctrine of um, the immortal soul and the soul being good and the body being bad became really, really popular. So when you do that, so if you, if you would say to Plato, oh, this body's going to decay, and he'd say, oh, you know, yuck. And he'd say, but don't worry, because God's going to give me my body back. He'll be like, it was bad enough before you died. Why would you want it back again? It, it, just, it just doesn't make any sense. 
um, for the kind of the platonic worldview. Whereas the, the spiritual realm, the realm that you know nothing about, the realm that I can't even describe to you because it's so unlike anything you've ever experienced, that's what you're made for. That kind of really caught on. Um, so, yeah. We kind of forgot it a bit. But if all we needed to do was just die and go to heaven, Jesus could have just stayed dead. You know, he dies for our sins, and that's it. He, he needs to... He, well, he comes back from the dead for us as well. <laughs> well, we have many, many planets to, uh, to explore. Pardon? <laughs> I think there's a slight difference in that we don't become gods. No, it's, it's, it, I'm sorry to tell you, Jono, you do not get your multiple spiritual wives. So, yeah. Anything else? No? Okay, cool. Let me pray. You may. Yeah. Um, so that the problem we have, I mean, th- I'm I'm very aware of this in deep dive that whenever I talk about. Israel, what we're doing in Deep Dive is we're slowly working through the Bible as it unfolds. Every now and again, we dip into the New Testament a bit to kind of preview the rest of the story. But I'm trying to talk about it from the perspective of like, this is what a Jew before Jesus came, or an Israelite even, would know. This is their hope. Every now and again, we, you know, as I say, preview. But so... I talk sometimes as though the restoration of Israel hasn't happened because from the deep dive perspective, we haven't got to that part of the Bible yet. But from a real world perspective, I think it has happened yet. So I realize that my language might sometimes be a bit confusing. So to kind of put my cards on the table, when we're talking about the modern state of Israel, the big problem is, as I say, at the best we can call it the land of Judah. The Jews have returned to Israel and the Jews are not Israel. The Jews are one-twelfth of Israel. When you look at the, the New Testament, the restoration of Israel is a, is a thing that happens when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Are you at this time going to restore Israel, the disciples ask. Well, wait to be clothed with power and you'll see. And then the book of Acts is just a story about many thousands of people from all these different tribes, tongues, and nations all coming to be in Jesus. I'd say the restoration of Israel has happened and is happening. So the modern state of Israel... Are, I think I have said this before, but politically, you can have an opinion one way or the other. I personally think it's a good thing that they have been given a a land. I think that every people group should have an entitlement to their own land. I'd say the same about the Kurds, for instance. I don't think there's any theological significance to it. So I would want to keep when we talk about if by Israel we're talking about the modern state of Israel, I would want to keep that out of the discussion theologically. 
that makes sense. Um, as I say, I, I would. I think it's a good thing what happened in the 40s. I think anti-Semitism is terrible. I think the Christian church has a terrible history of it. But saying this is not related to biblical prophecy is not being anti-Semitic, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I probably agree with that. Maybe. Probably. Jane said that um, it may be a good thing that they got their land, but perhaps they got it too early because the way they went about taking it was not good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. I think one of the one of the problems is that even the word church I mean so so the Jews in the first century were reading the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament as their main Bible, and references to the ecclesia, the the assembly of God is is, is used all the time. So that when they start talking about the ecclesia around Jesus, they wouldn't be thinking about oh, Israel and the church. They'd be thinking about the ecclesia and the ecclesia. The, the ecclesia means church, by the way. Yeah. So, so in English, it's very easy to to kind of separate categories out that they wouldn't naturally have separated out. And one of the problems is it makes it seem as though there was this kind of definitive moment where things just changed. It was Israel, and now it's the church. And I mean, the story of Acts just show that that change was very organic. That, that change involved certain people saying, we don't want any part of this, and others saying, we absolutely want a part of this, and gradually it becomes easy to say, you're not God's people, and we are God's people. Uh, if you were God's people, you wouldn't be stoning Stephen's death, for instance, or chasing us through the towns, trying to get us killed. Um, so, I mean, I, I think 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, is, is God's way of saying... You're not mine anymore. Yeah. So. But I don't think Israel ever died. So new Israel, I think, is an issue in that because, well, some, if you've got the, the blob of Israel, part of the blob left and a different part of the blob joined. So there's, it's new in a sense because there's a new bit, but. Still the same job, same purpose, yeah. Okay, I am going to pray now. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this world that you have made. Thank you for its goodness. And Lord, we repent for the ways that we as your creatures have failed to honor you, have failed to fulfill the task that you've given us. But we thank you that you are at work restoring creation bringing it back in accordance with your will. And Lord, we do thank you that you have promised that death, the great enemy, the greatest expression of our fallenness, will be dealt with. That all those who we have loved 
and have tasted its sting will be brought back. That we will be united to you to live on the earth that you have restored in its fullness. Give us excitement in this task. Embolden us with this vision. May we have resurrection hope beyond the resurrection of hope of these men who died for their faith because we know that the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah who has promised and guaranteed it to us. Amen. Thank you for coming out. Sorry that I've run over a bit. I hope it's been okay.